0: Well, several centuries ago, the way Christian education was practiced comprised predominantly of something called a catechism. A catechism, it's really just a simple instruction through oral, uh, simple process of oral instruction, a call and response, you know, a question is posed and then kind of a formulated answer is given. And the thought was that if you were able to memorize all these questions and answers, if someone, you know, it's almost like a test, as long as you could Uh, give the correct answer, then poof, you've been Christianized. And, you know, I think rightfully so, over the last couple centuries, there's been a push against rote recitation, rote memorization. Many Christians have moved away from this process of catechism. And there's still some vestiges left of it. Uh, In the Catholic Church, youth go through a process called CCD, uh, which I thought stood for Catechism of the Catholic Church, doctrine. It does not. It stands for a confraternity of Christian doctrine, uh, but shorthand by many in the church, it's called just the catechism. Now, if you ask many Catholics today, they'll often say that it's just another example of rote memorization without any heart in it. Now, unfortunately, many of these trends are a shame because the practice of catechism, I would argue, does have a place in the life of the Christian faith. As we've moved away from these teachings and these tools, our evangelical culture also has moved away from many of the theological moorings of our faith. There are a number of surveys over the last few years that reveal that more and more Christians don't know basic doctrine, basic truths about the gospel, and instead respond with answers that are borderline, if not outright, heresy. I mean, there was a pretty big, I think it was Barna who did it, or Pew Research, that Uh, a a significant number. I mean, we're talking over 50% of people self-described Christians did not agree with the deity of Jesus Christ. That is heresy, and the church has called it heresy for millennia. Now, within the last couple of decades, there's a group of evangelicals that are called the Gospel Coalition, and they've modernized one of the ancient catechisms. From the 16th century, it was originally called the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but they've rebranded it as the New City Catechism. And periodically, it's been—gosh, a year and a half, almost two years—since we went through one of these. But over the last five years, as a church, we've slowly been moving through the 52 questions and answers in this catechism. And so this morning, um, uh, you know, it was supposed to be Q&A Sunday. Didn't really have much uh, in the way of questions. So here's a different question that we're going to answer. Uh, We're going to be looking at question 24. Now, some of you might be already thinking like, man, I picked the wrong service to go to. We're going to be dealing with a catechism. This sounds really boring. My eyes are already rolling in the back of my head. But there's some really important gospel truths in this question. We speak uh, commonly about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But sometimes we kind of gloss over why was it necessary what did it accomplish? How did it accomplish it? Living in an age where many Christians are devoid of these really important questions, I hope that we can focus our hearts and our mind on this content to better understanding the suffering of our Savior and the redemption that he wrought. So it's uh, question 24, and it says this, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Put another way by Mark Dever from the Gospel Coalition, he asks, why was Jesus' death morally necessary? Why did it have to happen this way? Now, some of you who have been in church a long time probably think you know the answer, but I hope even those of you who know know the the quote-unquote right answer are stretched to consider new facets of Christ's death. Why was it that Christ had to die? Here's how the New City Catechism folks would answer the question. Oh, hit the wrong button. Let's try that again. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God by his substitutionary atoning death. He alone redeems us from hell And gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Now, that answer is made up of a number of different propositional statements. Um, And I'm going to look at a few of those in turn. And the first few words of the statement say this since death is the punishment for sin. This is a foundational assumption that is being put out in, in this, put forth in this. Right, the rest of the description of the effects of Christ's death are predicated on this proposition, that there is a relationship between sin and death. And honestly, we live in a culture that is sometimes a bit squeamish to the language of sin or the wrath of God. And so, we can, the truth is, we can find plenty of places in Scripture that attest to this relationship. Probably the most famous is one of the steps of the Roman road, Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death right the wages of sin a wage is something that is earned right it is a byproduct of our labor and so what Paul is saying in in Romans six twenty three, the first half of it is that the byproduct of our sinful attitudes and behaviors is death but before we just go to simply nodding assent to all that we've been taught in church we must ask ourselves the question of why Like, why must sin yield death? What does the Bible teach us about the origination of sin? Many of you know the story. Adam and Eve are in the garden, a literal paradise. They've been offered every fruit in the garden except one that they can eat, that they can partake in, they can celebrate. But that serpent, the enemy of God, sidles up next to Eve and Adam and makes his verse his voice heard. As an enemy attacking God's representatives, he doesn't go after them in in, in a a hard display of power. He doesn't attack them physically, but all he does is present an idea. He says to them, God's holding out on you. He says, God's scared that if you eat of that tree in the middle of the garden, you're just going to be like him, his equal. And even Adam listened to the serpent and they consumed the forbidden fruit. Now it's clear. God had communicated to them what the outcome would be. He said chapter before, Genesis 2, 17, in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve and Adam had violated God's command, and God has pronounced his judgment upon them. Why? It wasn't just a matter of eating an apple or a pomegranate. It's probably a little bit more culturally appropriate but the very act displayed a rebellion against God. By heeding the words of the serpent, by disregarding the the instructions of God, they showed where they were putting their allegiance in that moment. Adam and Eve did what just about, well, what every, save Jesus, every human being has done since, choosing second-rate pleasures over God. We choose to go our own way, and kind of almost give God a proverbial, you know, the proverbial finger in the process. I don't want anything to do with you. Let me let me let me live the way that I want to live. But that death that God promised was not immediate. Adam and Eve didn't fall down dead the moment that they consumed it. Instead, they were banished from the garden. But before they go, something really important happens. Genesis three twenty-one. It says that God fashion right because remember they, they sewed some plants together some fig leaves together to because they knew they were naked to cover their nakedness but it says in genesis three twenty one that god made new clothes for the man and the woman out of the skins of animals now this is multi-layered because first it shows god's continued acceptance and adoption of the woman and man i think about that parable the prodigal son that wayward son when he returns The father's commands to his servant is basically dress him right put a robe on him put a ring on his finger put sandals on his feet it was an act showing his continued inclusion in the family so too i believe that god's clothing of adam and eve signified their continued belonging to god however for these skins to have been adorned it would have meant death death did take place the death of an animal and so even in this very act I think we see a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ through a substitutionary death sonship and daughtership was maintained now why is it that God has these standards god says he's holy and therefore if we want to be like him we ought to be holy as well we should mimic or we should live in a way that mimics his creative, his compassionate reign over the earth. But we haven't done that. We've sinned. We have rebelled against God. I know there are many who wince at the thought of God's wrath. Why is it that God, in, for people who wander astray, why is the punishment so severe? Over sin. Why is the wage of sin death? Now, I think when we ask that kind of question, it showcases the privileged position that we find ourselves in. It's easy for me to ask that question when I'm living a life of comfort. We don't want, you know. Maybe I'll acknowledge that, like I've I've gone astray here, there. I haven't done something right. But it's like God, you're being a little bit like too severe with me right now. Of course, it should be easy for God. You know, God should go easy on my sins. But you know what? If you find someone who is oppressed, someone who is suffering unjustly because of the sins of others, see if they cry out to God for justice against their oppressors. I mean, you see this in the Old Testament, right? You see language, harsh language saying, God, deliver me from my enemies because they're, they're, it's not that they're just not being, un, they're being unkind to me, but they, they've, they're, they're seeking out my life right now. I've said it before that I believe that God's wrath is proportional to His love. In fact, God's wrath is not antithetical to His love, but I would argue is an expression of His love. Let me just give you an example. We drive an old 2012 Dodge Grand Caravan, and you know, you spend a lot of money on your vehicle. Next to your house, your car is probably the largest purchase that you will make. Now. If my car is parked, my van is parked in front of my house, and someone hits my van and then drives off, I would be rightly miffed. You would probably be miffed too. But any anger that I have towards that driver pales in comparison to what I would feel towards someone who harmed one of my children. My fury towards someone who hurt my kids, towards someone who wrecked my vehicle is proportional to the love that I feel for each of them. Do You see that? I love my kids, but God loves my kids even more than I do. He loves every human being more than we can fathom, more than we can imagine. They're his image bearers. Is it right and just for him to get angry when others demean or harm attempt to snuff out the dignity of his children I would say so. Death is a punishment for sin because we have lived in a way that is out of alignment from God's design and we have harmed others in the process. I'm sure plenty of times harm was not our intention. But you know if one of my kids accidentally hurts the other and says, I am sorry. The apology doesn't just make the pain go away or disappear. God's goodness and perfection leads him to pour out his wrath and judgment on those who have left destruction in their wake of sin. God's punishment over evil displays God's love and goodness. Now, I know I spent a lot of time just on that very first proposition, but I think it's foundational to our understanding of why Jesus had to die. Because if I don't think that sin should yield death, then that weakens the effect of what Jesus did on that cross. So that first statement that they say is, death is the punishment for sin. Now, on the heels of that first statement, the catechism says that Christ died willingly, this is important for us to point out, right, that Jesus had agency in the process. There are some who are critical of the faith who argue that the suffering of Jesus amounted to cosmic child abuse, right, that God the Father laid upon, the, laid upon Jesus a burden that Jesus was forced to bear. You know, I, I mean, I would argue that's heresy, Again, because it's important to note that there are no unequal balances of power. If you've got a strong understanding of the Trinity, it teaches that the Father and the Son are co-equal. They are equal in power, they are equal in substance, they are equal in authority. What we see is Jesus choose to submit his will to that of the Father's. Not because he was coerced to it. But as i quoted earlier hebrews 12 2 tells us that because of the joy that was set before him jesus willingly endured the cross spurning its shame jesus died willingly in our place in order to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and both of those power and penalty are important characteristics of what jesus freed us from right they're not just synonyms they're not just thrown in to to make the catechism sound eloquent because when we think about Christ's death, we usually default to considering the deliverance from the penalty of sin, right? That's the the teaching of Ephesians 1-7, right? Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through Christ's death, most theologians hold to what's called the penal substitutionary theory. You see that language highlighted? I'm not going to go there, but that's in the next line of the catechism. And it's not the only theory of to what Christ accomplished on the cross, but by far it's the most prevalent. I think it has the most biblical clout. In short, the fact that Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin means that Jesus suffered and died the death that we deserve, right? Remember, death was the punishment for sin. So, he died in our stead and we're given his righteous life instead, right? That's the great exchange. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's this exchange that takes place. Mark Dever again states, so why did the Redeemer die? Because that's the only way you and I would live. That's the focus on the penalty of our sins. But what about this language of deliverance from the power of sin? This is where I'm indebted to a 20th century Chinese Christian teacher named Watchman Ni. And Watchman Ni says that Christ delivered us from sins, plural, which I would argue is kind of this penalty portion that I was just discussing, but he also delivered us from sin, singular. Jesus delivered us from our sins and our sin. Tree explains himself a bit more, and I quote, I can clarify my point with an illustration. The many sins are like the fruit of a tree. They exist individually, and a tree can bear one or two hundred of them. This is how sins are. Sin, on the other hand, is like the tree itself. At the beginning, we need forgiveness because we have committed sins, but after a while, we realize that we need to be freed because we are sinners, because we sin. The death of Jesus not only delivers us from the penalty of the sins we have committed, but it also goes and cuts to the heart, the source of our sin. Right? When we cling to Jesus, we're going to see more and more victory over our sinful nature. As we experience Christ's forgiveness for our sins, we will see our heart begin to be transformed. Right? Slowly, to use, keep that metaphor going of watch many, those branches of the tree of sin are going to be lopped off, never to grow more fruit. For the next sentence, I already touched on a substitutionary atonement, but it says, He alone redeems us. It seems like such a simple and assumed statement, but It's significant. Jesus Christ is the only one who could redeem us. The ancient church creeds taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man. You know, not man up until his baptism when the spirit descended upon him and then, you know, the the departs on the cross. Not that Jesus was only like fully God, but seemed appeared to be here in the flesh like an apparition. Those are all various heresies that were described in the church. No, Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% human. Now, the full association of those two natures, it's a mystery to us. We, we can't precisely know how that works out, but it's important for us to hold those two things together in tension because it allows him, it shows that he is the only one who can save us. He was fully God, not only was he the only being to have lived a perfect and holy life, but as God, as an infinite God, he is able to bear the full weight of our sin. He was also fully man. He was our representative. He experienced life in the same way we did. He knew what it was to hunger to experience the loss of a loved one, to be completely dependent on someone else for his needs. As Hebrew fours remind us that Jesus is our great high priest, he can sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we go through because he's experienced it all, but yet without sin. And then the final four clauses provide the consequence of the atonement, kind of what Jesus worked on our behalf. He delivered us from hell, he gained for us forgiveness of sin, he provided a righteousness to us, and he gave us everlasting life. I'm going to skip hell for just a second. And we've already touched on Christ's forgiveness and this righteousness, this credit we receive for his righteous life, you know, that great exchange, 2 Corinthians five twenty one. I want to talk about that last one, gave us everlasting life. Now, there are plenty of places in scripture where faith in Jesus means that this life is not the end of the story that second half of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but Paul contrasts that. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle John, 1 John 5.11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and in this life is in his Son. Even out of the mouth of Jesus, probably the most famous Bible verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the unending promise of faith that God has given us, something that we can have hope, that we can look forward to. But let's circle back to hell, and I'd say this is both very simple and it's very complex. The simple facet of this statement is what the Catechism said that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are delivered from the judgment of God in hell, right? You can take that one to the bank, you can be comforted by it. But what becomes a little bit more complex and not quite as straightforward is what is the precise nature? If we are not found in Christ, what is the precise nature of that punishment that that is upon them, that we avoid if we are in Jesus, right? Like, is hell a literal lake of fire? Are those who are condemned to that fate tortured for all eternity? Who's the agent of that torture? Is it God? Is it the devil? Just how far of a reach did Christ's forgiveness go? I don't agree with the statement, but many years ago I had a coworker who said, uh, "This is like 15, 20 years ago, that hell was full of forgiven people." That's what she said. I mean, if that's true, why are they there? Does Christ's redemption lead us to a type of universalism? Those are all very important questions dealing with this nature of hell uh, of which I'm not going to go into today. That's not the purview of this message. You know, if that's something that you're like, I want to hear more about that, ask that question next time for the Q&A. But for now, we know that we have avoided whatever it is because of Jesus. We've got that that uh out. So I've communicated a number of these, these heavy theological principles. So what? What, is it, what does it matter? What difference does this make for us today? When, when I walk out those doors, how does what is upheld here in the catechism mean any difference to me when I head home? And I've got two things that I hope can try to begin to connect the dots for some of these to our lives. First is something that I think we often take for granted in the church, that Jesus has delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. You know, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? We say it all the time, but do we live it as if it were true? Because too often I've encountered folks where our posture indicates that we're lacking one or both of those characteristics of, of Christ's redemption. I regularly hear folks bring up the sins of their past continuing to just be like plagued or racked with guilt trying to connect some unfortunate event that's happening in the present with you know this thing that i did almost like god works on some type of karma which he does not right that that god is punishing me today because of something i did in the past you know when we carry ourselves that way it reveals our unbelief you have been forgiven full stop the full weight of the punishment that God have for our sins for our failure to live according to his ways past present and future have all been nailed to the cross right when Jesus said it is finished it wasn't ah you know it's done except for those really bad things that Jane did you know no we have been delivered from the penalty of our sins But we've also been delivered from its power now i'm not advocating that we can live in a way that is you know sinless perfection we talked about this a few weeks ago i think paul debunks that in uh, philippians that that's not the reality of the christian but we should not go to the other extreme to be like well i'm never going to be perfect so i'll just sit back and be like god you can just forgive whatever i'm going to do doesn't matter what i do or i'm powerless over my sinful nature I had a doctor's appointment a few weeks ago, uh, mostly positive, but, you know, that darn blood pressure, just, just a little bit on the high side. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he's, like, he eats healthy and all that, and so much of this is determined by genetics. But I don't just sit back and be like, well, it's just genetics, I guess I just have to live with this. No, there are things that I could do to help lower it. I can, you know, just a loss of, like, five pounds, can alter my blood pressure. I can eat less foods that are high in sodium. Even if my blood pressure might be predominantly dictated by genetics, there are things that I can do, things that I can tame my body, exercise more to bring it under submission, to live a healthier lifestyle. We understand this. We discipline ourselves in order to see changes in our bodies, so why not in our souls as well? Now, with God's help, of course, I'm not saying we can do this on our own, But Hebrews 10, 14 puts this into words. The author says, for by a single offering, he, Jesus Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or who are being perfected. While you are being perfected, you have already been declared perfect. Martin Luther put it this way. He called us in Latin, simul justice et peccator simultaneously at the same time we are justified and sinner we'll continue to struggle with sin on this side of paradise but even so we've already been declared righteous we've already been declared perfect before god and i think that process of spiritual growth is us learning to lean more and more into that identity that is already true of us right because christ has delivered us not just from the penalty of sin but also its power We can be free from these things. And the second thing I want us to consider, and it's one of those drums that I beat regularly, but I know I need to be reminded of it all the time. Christ's death ushers us into eternal life, his death and resurrection in particular. But that eternal life is not something that is just purely future-oriented. It's not something we just wait on our heels, sitting back, You know waiting to die waiting for jesus to come back so that we might you know go to heaven jesus said that he came so that we might live even here and now with abundance right christ initiated the kingdom of god we await its full expression its full its fullness when he comes again but as we think about eternal life eternal life is not something that begins at some future distant point in time. Eternal life begins now. Begins today. And so my question for you is as you think about, as you lean into the eternal life that God provides, how are you living as a citizen of that greater kingdom of God? Whether it be through the ways that you parent, the ways that you conduct yourselves at work, interactions with your neighbors, with your community, I think you catch the drift. We can live now in God's kingdom. Because eternal life is not just future oriented, but I think involves the present as well. Definitely it involves the future, but it doesn't it's, it's not merely the future. Right? The the you know, as we consider these ramifications of Christ's death, my hope would be that we could lean into these truths. We lean into this forgiveness from sin this deliverance that he's provided. Because the truth is, as we celebrated, you know, with communion, we've been bought with a price. And so we ought to live a life that is worthy of that sacrifice, worthy of, of his death, of that calling. And so to kind of get us thinking about this this week, I have a few reflection questions to think about. I'll post them on Facebook and the web. You know, as we in- encounter the catechism, right, the catechism is not the authoritative word of God, so it's okay if you have disagreements with it. i, I there are some that are coming up that, who knows, it'll probably be another f- five years till we get to them, that I have some disagreements with. But as we think about what, what was shared today, are there any parts of this catechism answer that you have difficulty believing or agreeing with? Whether it's, you, you know, you think they're off the rocker, again, I feel like this one's pretty well versed and based in scripture, not a lot of conjecture, but um, sometimes it's like, I have trouble believing this, I have trouble internalize this, and try to figure out why or why not. Second is this. This deals with the penalty of sins. Uh, Is there a failure in your life that you have struggled to experience God's forgiveness? I can't tell you the number of times where I've talked to folks and they, maybe it's just one thing, that they, this this shame that they kind of keep thinking that they they keep living over and over and over again. Um, Jesus has forgiven everything. Full stop. We don't need to live with that shame anymore. It could have been really bad, too. And then this week, thinking about this, this kingdom-minded, kingdom-oriented, how will we live as a citizen of God's eternal kingdom, right, this week? Not when I die. Not when Jesus comes back. We should do those things, but here and now. Because we don't just sit here twiddling our thumbs. But God invites us to join with him in the restoration work that he is bringing. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll sing one more song together. God, as we enter into this time of reflection and this time of singing, may we hold fast to this truth, Lord, that you have um, given of yourself, that you did so willingly, that the horrific nature of the crucifixion that you endured You did with a purpose to bring salvation to us, to bring forgiveness, to cast our sins away from us so that we could be returned and reunited with God, with your Father. And so, God, may we, as we sing the song, truly praise you as the one who has paid it all, has removed our sin as far as the East is from the West. Maybe that's something that we've said time and time again, Lord, but may it penetrate our souls that we can live it to know that there's forgiveness and there's freedom. Lord, we thank you for those, those things. In Jesus' name, amen.